Hello, everyone, and welcome back to When Movies Were Good. I'm Rachel with my weekly guest star and close friend, Matt. Matt, how are you doing over there? Yeah, I'm doing great, Rachel. Wish we were doing this in person, but I'm glad to be here talking with you. Yeah, that's right. Matt and I are back on Skype again. We're in yet another lockdown, uh, which has been extended. So I'm in the resort studios, aka my little flat that I live in, and Matt's at his uh, family residence. We're not geographically that far away. It's probably, what, a 15-minute drive, is it, Matt? 15, 20 minutes, I think? Yeah, but we're still a bit beyond the five-kilometre limit. Yeah, and you're not supposed to have anyone in your home or something at the moment anyway. So we're going to make the best of a bad situation and just kind of get on with it here. So what Matt and I do, for those of us that listen, those of you that listen, we conversate about classic movies from the silent era to 1959. Why? Because that's when we feel when movies were good. So not that there aren't other good movies from other eras. I'm not a huge fan of Bond films. But um, this is just a great era. It's just a, a beautiful era to talk about. There's so many stars, um, different, you know, genres, noir, cowboys and westerns, you know, everyone, Hitchcock, all the greats, they're there and there's just so much to talk about. So that's why we like to focus on that. So, Matt, just quickly, did you want to just let everyone know our social media and then we'll jump right into our Doris Day double. Yes, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All links are available through our YouTube channel, and we are also now broadcasting finally on iTunes and Spotify as well. So please give us all your thumbs up and five-star reviews. We do appreciate them, and they do help us get out in front of more people. And that was my sales pitch for this round. Yes, and one of our sales pitch, and also... Matt really is the technical brains behind this podcast, so he deserves all the props for that. Um, So without Matt's expertise, we wouldn't sort of be on any of these other platforms. So um, it's good to acknowledge that, and I thank Matt so much for his hard work. So we are going into a Doris Day double. Now, Doris Day only, as Matt and I were discussing just before we started recording, she passed away in 2019 at the grand old age of 97. So she certainly had a good innings. Um, And she's, you know, she was one of America's sweethearts. She was born in 1922. She was an actress. She was a singer. And then in her later life, after she retired officially from performing, she was an animal welfare activist. She started her career as a big band singer in the late 30s. She had some uh, hit recordings like Sentimental Journey, My Dreams Are Getting Better All The Time. And then finally she sort of left purely singing. She did have such a beautiful, clear singing voice as well. Uh, and she still pursued that on the side and then she kind of went into the studio system and became Doris Day, the all-rounder. You know, she really is what you call an all-rounder. She could do a little bit of everything, and she was good at everything too. So yeah. she... Um, we all know her case, Sarah Sarong song. Yeah. <laughs> I was... Um, I got some of my singing, some of her songs out of my system before we started recording, but I can't guarantee that I'm not going to come out with a rendition of Deadwood Stage or Pillow Talk or one of those, but we'll just see how we go. So I'll she up started the her for those bits. <laughs> so she started um, her career during that golden age of Hollywood. So in the late 40s or so, 
Uh, obviously, one of the most famous films she's known as, one of my favourites that I just sing along to the whole thing, is Calamity Jane in 1953. She also worked with the great Alfred Hitchcock in The Man Who Knew Too Much with James Stewart. And then, of course, um, some of the films that we're discussing today, one of which was Pillow Talk. She worked with her great friend Rock Hudson and one of the loves of my life, Tony Randall, who I absolutely loved. But she worked with the greatest in the industry. You know, she worked with James Cagney, Cary Grant, um, Kirk Douglas, Lauren Bacall. And then she sort of finished off her on-camera sort of career doing her own sitcom, The Doris Day Show, and she did that from 1968 to 1973. She also did a great uh, film with Sinatra as well, Young at Heart. That used to be one of my favourites. Oh, okay. I haven't, haven't yet seen that one, but I'll be curious to see if I can check that one out. What's it called, Young at Heart? Yeah, that's kind of where Sinatra solidified his image in as the guy with the hat and the piano. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, I'll have to – I'll write that one down. I'll, I wouldn't mind sort of young at heart. I wouldn't mind sort of checking that one out. So um, I like how some of these stars come across their names. So Doris's name was Doris, but her last name was Kappelhoff, and she basically got the name Day – from a song, I believe, that she recorded. Um, and that's how she she got the song Day After Day uh, was a song that she recorded and one of the studio executives or whomever it was suggested that she should probably just, you know, um, de-ethnic her last name as a lot of people were, were encouraged to and, and, and that's how she ended up with Day. Well, whole cities were getting uh, their names changed for being too German-sounding at that time. Yes, that's true, yes. And look at what Prince Philip did with his name too. Yeah, you're right. He had German ancestry, probably wanted to keep it under there, especially if you're performing in Hollywood at the time. So we're going to do one of her lesser-known films. She's not the vehicle in this film. Um, It's it's more Ginger Rogers' film, and Ginger Rogers is really good in this film. I really enjoyed her. Storm Morning, 1951. Uh, You need Ginger Rogers' toughness for that film. Yeah, I actually didn't think Ginger Rogers had it in her, but she was great. Uh, And Doris was good in this film. And then Ronald Reagan and Steve Cochran, who played Hank, I thought he was really good as well. So Doris Mm. was the second female lead in here playing Ginger Rogers' daughter. So we'll just step over to that one. So, So Matt, did you want to just, before I encapsulate what happened in the film, did you want to just give me your thoughts on it just briefly? Yeah, well, I think uh, it is great to see a movie against an actor's type, and in Doris Day's case, this is one of the great ones because we're used to her being portrayed as a very nice girl next door, and she is in this movie as well, but it isn't a a soft film. It's a very hard um, story revealing um, what in the early 50s, the workings of the Ku Klux Klan, which uh, already by that time people were becoming well aware of how violent uh, a terrorist organization it really was, even though like 30 years earlier, it had been an almost mainstream party movement that was having parades in uh, down on Washington. Uh, But Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it became so much of a, aside from it's a, obvious racism and violence it was also a, a corrupt protection i guess uh, for a lot of uh, corrupt industries 
Yeah, that's right. So just to encapsulate, if, if you, you're not familiar with the film Storm Warning, uh, 1951, directed by Stuart Heisler. So Marsha, uh, which is Ginger Rogers' character, is a young woman. She's sort of travelling around with her job. She visits the town where her sister and husband live, like a very small, close-knit town. Uh, and she, as pretty much as soon as she steps off the bus, she witnesses a, a brutal murder. And then she basically helps the authorities going against, you know, members in her own family uh, and with the help of Ronald Reagan's character to bring the people to justice. However, uh, doesn't exactly end too well for her without giving too much away. So very Romeo and Juliet type uh, ending, only less. Yeah, yeah, so we don't don't want to give too much away of the film, but it's not a happy it's not a happy ending. Is it a just ending? Maybe. So we not had Ginger Rogers playing. Yeah, we um, had Ginger Rogers playing Marsha Mitchell, and then Doris played her younger sister Lucy, who is married to Hank, played by Steve Cochran, who I think did. I'm not really familiar with his work, but I thought he was great in this film. And then Ronald Reagan plays the um, Burt Rainey, the district attorney, I believe it is, who's trying to get to the bottom of this murder. And as Matt sort of discussed. The murder has to do with the Ku Klux Klan members of the town of which um, Doris Day's husband uh, is involved with. But as Matt said, it's, it's um, you know, back in those days there was a lot of political um, sway in that movement. It's not just the cardboard cutout movement that we understand it to be now and they, you know, rah, 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 they were racist and, of course, they were but there was a lot more going on as a political movement with them down south. It's probably not our place to say as foreigners exactly, you know, get too involved in the political thing. But pretty much, you know, in these small-knit towns, you know, if you didn't join in with what was happening, you were probably going to be on the outer very quickly. Yeah, well, it was a uh, not to mention uh, simply just being a, a normal person and feeling quite intimidated if you did speak out. Yeah, that's right. So the the film is a beautiful looking film. Um, I really enjoyed just the way that this film looked. Uh, it was distributed by Warner Bros. It goes for ninety three minutes, so it's not overly long or anything. Uh, Ginger Rogers really is the standout in this film. She's very strong, and I mean, if every one of us is familiar with Ginger Rogers, who loves classic films and the dancing and Fred Astaire. And, but this is both of them are playing against type, although I guess maybe Doris came more into playing the fresh all-American girl because she did Calamity Jane two years after this and then pretty much from then on there was a lot of singing and dancing in a lot of her films. I guess maybe not so much The Man Who Knew Too Much, but, um, yeah. So although she did she do wasn't... Sarah, Sarah in that one. Yes, that's true because you've got to have one. Uh, I, I, I had the intention to start seeing it, but I... I I, ca- I put it away. I put it away. I have to say, <laughs> so I, 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 I probably will start singing Pillow Talk a bit later on. But, yeah, so apparently um, Lauren Bacall was originally, they wanted her to play the Ginger Rogers part. I, can't, I think Lauren Bacall would have been a bit young. Or was that just me, 1951? Yeah, she would have been quite young at the well, time. Uh- she was with uh, a few of uh, Bogart's films in the 40s and, like, she was in her early 20s then. But then uh, right. Ginger Rogers, I think, would have been, because this would have been, like, in the 
she she had been around for a little while by now. I mean, the ones we did for the Fred and Ginger special uh, were mm. made about 15, 12, year, 12 years earlier. Yeah, I guess that's true, yeah. Um, I just, yeah, I, I just think she was a great choice for the film because sometimes it's it's um, it's great seeing somebody go against type. I remember watching Monster with Charlize Theron and I thought, there's no way Charlize Theron's going to be able to play serial killer, the character of Eileen Warnos in this film, but she was fantastic. It just goes to show you when you actually give an actress or an actor who wants to act uh, an actual role to play that they can get into it. So I think some of the critics weren't too on board with this film because they believed it trivialised the topic of bigotry. So that wasn't that part of the Ku Klux Klan, like them being like more like a mafia sort of style, you know, enforcers in the town was highlighted, but not the topic of bigotry. But I suppose, you know, the Ku Klux Klan was many things to many people. So you've got to have a few different films that show different aspects of it. So I'm not sure I, I agree with that criticism. I was surprised, though, that for a film that's supposed to be an expose of a fundamentally uh, racist organisation, um, that the victimisation of black populations were sort of relegated to the background because we only see a few um, African-American extras. They don't play much part in even the crimes that were being committed, let alone the proceedings afterwards. Yeah, I... Uh, yeah, I, I do understand the criticism, but I guess it was a story focused on on a woman and her family and how they were affecting, you know, because obviously they negatively impact the, the white families in a lot of ways as well, and that was their story in this film. So, uh, you know, and I'm not sure in 1951 would they have been able to do that sort of film then anyway? Like Certainly about not the on racial... the scale of something like Mississippi Burning. No, that's that's right. So I agree with you there. I, I I get what they're saying, the critics of the time, but how how deep could they have gone into that? Is that something that the, the a mainstream audience would have wanted to have dealt with or grappled with back then? So uh, y- yes and no. I mean, it's easy for us to sit here now in 2021 and say that, but in 1951, yeah. So, you know, we're talking like 70 years ago. So, uh, but my overall impression was I enjoyed the film. I love seeing Royal Reagan. I love seeing Ginger Rogers in this film. I love the mood of it, uh, the way the film looked, the cinematography, and I thought it was an interesting watch. So, and how about you, Matt? What were your thoughts on it? Well, I've been meaning to see it for quite a long time. Uh, a person mm-hmm. I knew a few years ago who didn't otherwise watch that many older films was raving about it. And mm-hmm. it's kind of only more recently when iTunes has started to get a bit of a better scope of movies and the like that you can we were able to get a hold of a lot more now. And we're not limited to just what's in the local DVD store. So I was uh, very yes. glad that I had the opportunity to see it, and I loved Ronald Reagan's performance. If I had known about uh, his part in this film, I'd have um, uh, wish we actually included it when we did the Ronald Reagan episode. Mm, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a fan of Ronald Reagan, so I uh, I enjoy seeing him. He, you know, he's just somebody who came in and just did what he needed to do, and 
and I always enjoy that aspect about him. You know, it was a job and he went in there and he did it in a, in a pretty good workmanlike fashion and, you know, some some projects suited him more than others but definitely playing the district attorney uh, in this film suited him and suited his natural personality, I think, especially since what he did in the second part of his life, which was interesting. So, My you, so you did enjoy the film? Yeah, well, my favourite part was definitely uh, when we see, of course, at the end, uh, you have to have uh, the clan all in their hoods in a big group in the forest, and uh, he's um, courageously strutting through into there. Mm. Yeah, oh, and even yeah, that um, that tension um, when you have the reporter uh, going with the microphone in front of the courthouse, uh, trying to get the lay of the land, and everybody's uh, so hostile to him. I think those are two very those two scenes are probably uh, uh, quite good at uh, catching the delicate bridge one can often be walking on when uh, dealing with high tension politics and and uh, uh, extreme behaviour that people don't want to ast- associate with but uh, may agree partially with behind closed doors. Mhm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I I think the film did have a lot going for it. I understand the criticism of the film, but. I think that's more of something that we can say in hindsight, although I believe people were saying that at the time. But um, so we're going to move on to um, by now we're going to jump a little bit in Doris's career from 1951 to 1959 and she's America's sweetheart or one of them, one of the many that we have out there. She's a successful recording artist and now she's transformed into leading comedic romantic comedy lady with the first film that she did with her friends, well, one of her best friends, Rock Hudson and Tony Randall, uh, Pillow Talk, directed by Michael Gordon, um, and the music by the fantastic Frank DeVol, who I know from a lot of his uh, themes for TV shows. I think he did My Three Sons, The Brady Bunch, all sorts of things. So I just love the music in this film. And I'm not going to sing Pillow Talk. I, I wanted to start singing it then, but I've sung it my whole life because I saw this film when I was quite young and I'll be at work singing Pillow Talk and everyone's like, what the heck is that? It's all right, so, Rachel. We'll get an album together at the end of the year. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. I think Matt and I tried to record this the other night um, and then um, I have a few issues of bandwidth problems at my place and all the rest of it at night when everyone's streaming because we're in lockdown again and um, we weren't able to get the Skype working but I think Matt rang me on the phone. I had pillow talk blast. (laughs) It's like, hello, uh, what's going on over there? Love it. I was not surprised at all. Yeah. (laughs) I can't hear you, Matt. Sorry. Okay, so basically we've got a man and a woman, so Jan and Brad, played by Doris and Rock. A man and woman carry their feud over the telephone line they share into their real lives and much comedy ensues, especially with Tony Randall's character, Jonathan, who's sort of the proverbial third wheel in these films. So basically for the uh, audience out there, back in the day, when there wasn't such an availability of phone lines, especially in busy buildings and things like that, you had to share a line with someone and it was called a party line. And so you couldn't use it at the same time. You sort of, you know, if you went on the line and heard talking, it's like, okay, great, I'll have to wait till they're off and then I'll use it. I didn't actually understand the concept 
of party lines until I started researching them. I'm like, why? And she actually says in the film why she can't have her own line because they just don't have enough lines available for everybody. So um, I, they should get the party lines going again, Matt, with all these lockdowns and stuff. Yeah, well, I think um, that's a particular plot that you'd um, have trouble making work today uh, because everybody has their own devices. <laughs> Unless they're up in some, you know, little abandoned town or something and there's one mobile phone to use or something like that. <laughs> something like that. And, like, uh, technology was often uh, used to advantage for certain important lines. Like, there's that famous episode of the radio mystery show suspense where a woman accidentally eavesdrop onto a public telephone call. So like, I think you could actually sometimes accidentally uh, pick up the phone receiver and be hearing a public a telephone yes. call. And yeah, across lines, yeah. a murder being plotted, which ends up being on herself. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I um, grew up, grew up with old fashioned, you know, telephones. So occasionally sometimes you would pick up the phone and you'd be hearing something from another house and you'd be like, what is this? But it was a cross line. Um, I don't think we have that problem so much with mobiles and stuff anymore. But uh, yeah, those were the good old days. And I really miss the old fashioned way of calling people. So that's one of the things I love about Pillow Talk. So basically, we've got Doris's character, Rock's character. They've never actually met in person, but they only know each other through bickering over their party line because he's always on the phone with his paramours or, you know, many women and just feeding them the same lines that she hears over and over again to multiple women. Uh, so in sort of a chain of events, he eventually realises who she is when she's out and about one day and then he sort of starts a romance with her, I guess maybe out of a bit of a challenge, and then he actually falls for her, she falls for him, mistaken identity, they eventually find out about each other and there's problems that ensue and then we've got the wonderful Tony Randall as the third will who is best happens to be best friends with Rock's character and also madly in love with Doris's character. So he's always good for a laugh and I love Tony Randall. So I enjoyed the film. Um, it's I just love the whole concept of the party line and the, uh, the um, production design of the film, like the flats where they live, the outfits, the music, loved it. What were your thoughts, Matt? Well, yeah, it's a very... Uh, it- it's nice to remind yourself that occasionally it's all right for a film to have a more optimistic view of life. Yes. So we did start out with a rather grim uh, film, and it feels like every uh, film nowadays uh, uh, keeps you in a certain standard deviation of gloominess. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, but it is nice to actually have uh, fun in your um, uh, life and a movie viewing you once in a while, and this is one of those movies. And uh, I uh, do wish I could have had something like uh, Rock Hudson's uh, bachelor pad apartment. I mean, the first one, not after Doris Day's character has redecorated <laughs> it. <laughs> that was hilarious. It looked like the inside of Jeannie's bottle or something. And Matt, what is the connection to Larry Hagman in this in in our films this week? Doctor Bellows is in charge of the telephones. <laughs> So Hayden Rourke from My Dream of Jeannie played um, Dr. Bellows is one of the supporting characters in the film. He's the guy that works at the telephone company and explains why she can't have her own phone line. And so when I, I mean, Hayden Rourke was kind of a... That also helps explain it for us too. Yeah. (laughs) And I loved it. It was always good seeing him and he has that 
very distinctive voice and I'm like, oh, my God, hang on, that's Hayden, Hayden Roebrook. So uh, always good to see him and obviously seeing him always reminds me of Larry. But I loved, I think I could have lived in that era. I think I could have lived in the late 60s, uh, late 50s, early 60s because women did have a bit more independence then and it was before the 60s got too out of control with all the psychedelic stuff that I'm not really that interested in. But um, I, yeah, just the the clothes, the apartment, you know, I'm, I'm sure not everything was hunky-dory for a lot of women back then. There was still a lot of sexism and all the rest of it. But I saw that character of uh, Doris Day's Jan and, and, you know, she was an independent woman and she, you know, maybe too independent. And uh, I really enjoyed that. I really uh, enjoyed seeing that portrayal of a woman then. And uh, not to mention uh, we do have the uh, nice uh, vehicle uh, that we see at the beginning, the Mercedes mm. 300 SL Roadster. I recognise yeah. that, right? <laughs> Oh, this is the production design in the film is just absolutely stunning and it's just a feel-good film. You're not going to learn anything except for what a party line is if you're watching now. Um, back then they were the, all the common thing. But you're just going to see some beautiful people, some funny, talented people on the screen. I always do get a little bit sad when I see Rock Hudson in this era because, um, as I was telling Matt, you know, I remember when Rock Hudson died. I was about nine, I think, when he died because obviously being older than Matt, I remember that sort of era of the 80s. So I remember him. I remember Liberace passing away, uh, Freddie Mercury, and it was so taboo back then and they just didn't live long enough to get the sort of um, – drug therapies that are now available to people that do have the disease and um, just seeing him at the end of his life I just can't get those images of him out of my head he was so sick and he looked so bad and it just oh but you know she was a great friend to him she was there with him right until the end and that that says something about her I'm sure she was aware of his private situation so so yeah yeah well to and the fact that they were working so close to, closely together for so long. Yeah, that's right. And one of the la I think the last appearance he made, which is the one that everyone kind of points to because they knew he was sort of on death's door right then, was with one of her programs where she was dealing with the animal welfare activism things that she normally did. And she was doing an interview and she invited Rock to come along to the interview. And, oh, God, he didn't look well at all. And, uh, you know, very thin. And because he was such a big rock of a man literally um just to see him that way and the skin and the face and oh uh, you know it was just you know it was it was heartbreaking and back then you know much like what's going on in society now it, that's what AIDS was like back then like, oh my god you know can I touch this can I touch that and uh of course now it's like it's you know most people that they have the HIV and they can live with that for most of their life and be treated so um, I always, unfortunately, whenever I see anything with Rock in it when he was younger, but he had done um, a dramatic film, A Farewell to Arms, before that. So these films that he did with Doris Day really kind of helped his career change as well. So they did these three films together and then he did a, and then, of course, he went into TV with Macmillan and Wife and then obviously his life, you know, in the 70s. You wanted to see that, didn't you, Matt? Yeah, I haven't been able to um, find it uh, yet. I think you, if you go to JB Hi-Fi, you can uh, spend $70 on the complete box set, but I'd prefer to not spend that much just to watch it once. 
Yeah, well, as I said to Matt, I grew up with these shows being on reruns, so I do remember watching Macmillan. <laughs> it's very much like James Garner's The Rockford Files and a few shows like that. You know, a lot of people were going into TV back then and, um, you know, it, I don't know if it was considered a step down, but it's like, oh, you've got a TV show, like, hello. But now it's like, oh, you've got a TV show and you're in films. So, uh, but I think the TV landscape just changed with all the streaming and everything. It's not so taboo anymore to be in a TV show. So, for those uh, that, are, but I think for ahead. those that had already um had major careers, it was like a convenient way of earning extra extra money when they um didn't have as many mainstream film roles going. Yeah, that's true. I mean, look at Ray Milland, and I mean, you know, all of them were doing episodic TV at that point in time, which is lucky for us because we get to see them do all these cool cool little roles that they do. So, which I thoroughly enjoy, but yeah, 70s TV, yeah, definitely, yeah, it's out there. There's a lot of really interesting, some of the TV films they did back then are really interesting, especially the ones with Larry in it. <laughs> That's Dallas, just like, oh, the most God. important one of all. Yes, 1978, we love it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I must admit I did, you know, and I'm a big fan of 80s TV as well. So ultimately, uh, two different films from Doris, one of her black and white, almost like film noir, I guess you could say, you know, very taboo sort of subject. She's the, um, you know, supporting female lead in this film. I think she did a, a solid job. Interesting. If you are interested in her work, please see this film. It's, it's quite interesting. Uh, and then, of course, Pillow Talk, which was the first of the three that she did with Rock and Tony. Uh, I think I probably slightly prefer Love a Comeback, which is the second film that they did. Uh, and I haven't seen Send Me No Flowers, which is the third film. So we'll have to check those two out too as well, Matt, I think. Yes, but regardless, I thought Pillow Talk would be uh, very funny, especially um, because I was watching that on my iPad with headphones on. And when I was mm -hmm. laughing, when Rock had gone into the doctor's office and didn't realize he'd gone to... Uh, a particular doctor that wasn't suitable for him, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my family was laughing at me, laughing at whatever I was watching with my headphones on, and they were like, oh, "What's he watching now?" And I think your um, is it is it your Odie making a guest appearance in the background there, or? Uh, oh, sorry, you you can hear him. Yeah, yeah, I think the postman's here or something, and they must have um uh, be wanting to alert me to you know a, an intruder in the house. Oh, how cute! Oh, Matt's dogs are gorgeous. We'll have to get Matt to put some pictures of his dogs up on social media because they're absolutely gorgeous. And Odie's yeah. a get Odie with some headphones and a microphone. Yeah, definitely. So we had a ball with these films, especially Pillow Talk. Such a great laugh, and I'm always nostalgic for anything to do with Rock Hudson and Tony Randall and Doris Day. And we're going to have our first foray for our next edition of When Movies Were Good, two films from the same year, incidentally the year that Larry Hagman was born, 1931. Thanks for that. Um, yes, you know that by heart for sure. <laughs> One of the great years, I'm joking. Um, 1931, we're going to have our first foray into the Universal Monsters universe which I've been wanting to get into for a while now. There's just so many things to watch. So I actually want to make sure I get this block of films watched above and beyond what we're going to discuss, which is the 
the most famous two, let's face it, Boris Karloff, Frankenstein, 1931, and Bela Lugosi, uh, Dracula, 1931. And they're just With a name like that, he should be an opera singer. Bella Lugosi. Well, yeah. Boris Karloff, what was Boris Karloff's real name again? Hang on, let me just quickly look that up. Jeez, because he was like Anglo-Indian living in, in um, England. So I guess he chose, hang on, let's see, what was his name again? Sorry, just bear with me, everybody, while I quickly, William Henry Pratt. So well, That sounds a lot more like the voice I was hearing of him in an interview when he was being like, oh, I was invited into the studio and I was wearing my good suit and the producer asked me, uh, would I like to play the monster? And I thought, uh, perhaps my good suit is giving the wrong impression. <laughs> I know. It's unbelievable when you see Boris Karloff actually speak. So I wanted to, we did touch upon um, Doris Day's actual name was Doris Kappelhoff. So Rock Hudson's name was Roy Shearer Jr. And then my beloved Tony Randall was, I know his last name was Rosenberg. Hang on, let me just double check. Uh, Tony Randall, sorry, just wanted to, it's always interesting how they come upon these names. Um, Was, uh, what was his actual name? It was something like, oh, Aira Leonard Rosenberg was Tony Randall's name, Aira. So I think that's a A-R-Y-E-H. I think that's maybe a Jewish name I'm wanting to say, but don't quote me on that one. Well, that's one. why uh, when they uh, they make you change your name, if they're going to put your name in lights, they need to save on light bulbs. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, everyone, we are really excited for our monster, universal monsterverse um, exploration in the next When Movies Were Good. Thank you for joining us as we record this via distance and your patience. It doesn't sound that great, we know, but we're doing the best that we can. So, um, you know, in the meantime, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you and all the best.